you can't get much for five bucks these days. Unless you go to Wendy's for a $5 biggie bag. Get your choice of double stack, junior bacon cheeseburger, or crispy chicken BLT. Plus four-piece nugs, fries, and a drink. All for just five bucks. That was smooth, wasn't it? That's how you're going to feel when you get that biggie bag at Wendy's. U.S. price of participation may vary. Includes four-piece nuggets, small soft drink, and small fry. Prices may be higher in Alaska and Hawaii. The following are transcriptions of a series of audio recordings taken from a set of tapes discovered in a Ziploc bag, apparently abandoned in the Calumet Heights Nature Reserve. These tapes were apparently copied from master copies kept in an unknown location. The exact date of the content cannot be confirmed, as no labeling or audio defines the year in which they were recorded. Check, check. Uh, yes, this is Agent Carter Bennett assigned to case number 446A. The date is September the 3rd. This is the first of a series of information gathering interviews pertaining to Class A occurrence, event code 23. Interviewee 1 is Mr. Samuel Taley. Yeah, good to meet you again, Bennett. Sam is fine. All right, Sam it is. You work as a search and rescue operator, is that right? Yeah, that's right. I work as a volunteer firefighter and as a search and rescue worker specializing in mining accidents and cave-ins. Was in that line of work for almost a decade, actually. Was the first one in during the Roush coal accident a few years back, if you remember any of the news about that. And you and your team were the ones called to investigate the disappearance of Eric Green. That's correct that we weren't the first ones called. The neighbors had rung the cops to do a wellness check and they hadn't seen the guy for a few days and couldn't get an answer from him when they knocked on the door. Apparently the police sent a squad car over and the officer had gotten the door open and that's when they called us, which struck me as strange right off the bat. And why's that? Well, once the station called in the address, my team and I were all confused. They were requesting a search and rescue operation from a team that specialized in industrial mining accidents to take place right in the middle of a suburban neighborhood. I mean, of course, once we got on site it made sense. The officers led us on site through the perimeter they had set up and led the team to the front door. Once we opened it up, we saw it. The entire ground floor of the house was gone. The floor just dropped away into darkness below. The floorboards that were still attached around the edges of the pit were just splintered planks hanging over the edge. Made me think of a mouthful of teeth. Would you call it a structural failure? Nah, nothing like that. Looked like a sinkhole to me. A damn big one. Those things aren't terribly uncommon around this region. Limestone gets eaten up all the time. Not to mention there had been a pretty nasty storm a few days before we got the call. Could have been the final nail in the coffin for the stone ceiling under the house. Never seen a sinkhole that big around here, though. Never seen one that damn deep, either. Looking down from the doorway, we couldn't see the bottom. Just darkness below. And the edges of the hole, the, the stone was so smooth. It felt bad to look at it. Team wasn't too hopeful we'd find Mr. Green alive, 
It would have been a hell of a fall if he was down there. But we suited up just the same and got our gear ready to repel. God. I wish we had never gone down there. Please, take your time, Sam. I understand this can be difficult. How many of your team entered the sinkhole? Uh, uh, there, uh, there, there were three of us. Gina, Thomas, and myself, we, we went below. Mike stayed topside to ten lines and communications. We, um, we, uh, we, uh, strapped, uh, we strapped up and dumped the line over the edge. I can, I can still see it there. A thin neon green line disappearing into that dark. As team leader, I went in first, letting my harness slowly slide me down the line. I watched the walls with my headlamp as I went down. Not a crack or ridge in sight, just a smooth surface all the way down, like dark gray porcelain. Never seen stone like that before, Agent. Never. And it was wet, too. Condensation forming on the walls in tiny little rivers that trickled down the sides. Almost made it look like the walls were moving. And, and God, it, it was cold. And the deeper I went, the colder it got. By what I estimated to be 40 feet down, my breath came out in thick clouds and my teeth started to chatter. By the time I hit the bottom, I had to flex my hands inside my gloves to keep them from going stiff. Ended up landing on a pile of wooden rubble, the smashed up remnants of the floor and furniture of the house far above me. Judging from the coil of line that rested on bottom, I had hit solid ground nearly a hundred feet below the surface. A hundred and fifty feet. That's a hundred feet deeper than any other sinkhole ever found in this region. We've got shallow bedrock around here. Should have gone beyond any limestone structure way before bottom. The rest of the team landed barely a few minutes after me, detaching from the egress lines to join me on the rubble. I remember scanning the busted-up stuff around me and thinking how otherworldly to see pieces of chairs and linoleum this far underground. We started picking through our grids to find any sign of Eric Green, dead or alive. It was about then that Mike radioed in for the first unit check. He let us know that a storm was blowing in and to watch for any flooding down there. And then Gina spoke up. What did she say? I remember it exactly. She stood bolt upright her headlamp sweeping up from where she had been searching under a crushed table. She scanned real slow and talked in a low voice. Do you feel that? She sounded nervous when she said it too. That really put me on edge, because Gina was one of the most fearless, badass team members I had ever worked with. Never seen her scared of anything, but there was that edge to her voice, you know? Thomas and I both straightened up too, trying to see what she was talking about. Didn't take long. There was a breeze of some kind, a cold current of air that pulled around us, in and out, in and out. It was slow and steady, but it was there. When it came at you, it stank of sulfur. The way it pushed and pulled was like some huge animal was breathing down on us. We all searched with our lamps to find where the current was coming from. Air doesn't flow like that in a pit. Not unless it connects to a cave system that reaches the surface somewhere. At least that's what we thought. Anyway, sure enough, we find an opening in one of the walls. A perfect circle of a tunnel just as smooth as the stone around us. And I mean perfect. 
like it had been cut there by an engineer with a compass. The tunnel expelled and sucked the air around us, the apparent source of the current. We got closer and took a look. The tunnel beyond the circular hole had walls of smooth, dark porcelain stone, just like the sinkhole that dripped with cold, humid moisture. The structure of the sides undulated evenly in smooth ridges. In the bright light of my team's lamps, it reminded me of a black-and-white photo of the inside of an esophagus or some other organ. Looking at it made me feel sick deep in my guts. Despite that bad, bad feeling, I knew what we had to do. There was no sign of Mr. Green amongst the rubble at the bottom of the pit, and this was the only way out. If this guy had survived the fall and managed to wander through this tunnel, we had to find him wherever he had ended up, and so I led my team into the gap. And what did your team find in the tunnel? The end of man. This is Agent Carter Bennett, continuing information gathering interviews for case number 446-A. The date is September 3rd. This is interview number two. I'm here with uh, Miss Janet Fry. Uh, I'm sorry, Miss Fry. Could you speak into the microphone? Yeah, sure. Whatever. Can we get this moving? I'm ready to get out of town. Don't worry. I'm not going to cross state lines or break parole or nothing. Just got to get away from here. You're not a normal kind of cop, are you? No, ma'am, I'm not. Man, yes, of course. I will try to keep this conversation as concise as possible. To start off, could you please tell me where you were around 10 p.m. on the night of August 28th? Huh. <laughs> yeah. I'd been walking home, but by that point in the night I was cuffed and in the back of some pig squad car. Damn guys were none too gentle shoving me in there either. Picked me up on some bullshit stop and search. Found the needles and crap I was carrying with me. No, Miss Fry is referring to officers Daniel McVernon in Andre Holmes. Refer to document 33 for detail on law enforcement involvement in the incident. My apologies for interrupting. Please continue. Uh-huh. Honestly, in a weird way, I was kind of glad to be in the back of that car. The rain had started coming down pretty damn hard at that point and it was getting nasty cold out. Storm had blown in out of nowhere earlier in the day and had only gotten worse. Not to mention I had a real bad feeling the whole time I was walking back to my place. A bad feeling? Would you mind elaborating on that? Sure. It was one of those that makes you feel sick to your stomach for no reason. The kind that makes your neck prickle and your chest squeeze in on itself even though you don't see nothing wrong. It was a real heavy feeling. It pressed down on me getting worse as the night went on and got darker. You know, operative or uh, whatever the frickin' word is. Oppressive? Yeah, that's the one. Oppressive. Like something is tightening around you and there's nothing you can do to get away. So anyway, I'm in the back of the squad car and we're driving towards downtown so this asshole can throw the book at me. The cop's driving real slow on account of the storm, which is just pissing rain at this point. Coming down in heavy sheets that make it hard to see any more than five feet in front of the car. And beating on the roof like a bunch of tap dancers wearing combat boots. His partner keeps messing with the heater like he can't get himself comfortable. 
probably 10.30 or so when we're halfway to the station when these calls start coming in over the radio. They start off slow, the lady down at dispatch just doing her thing. A call coming in maybe every 9, 10 minutes. A possible break-in at 2445 Poplar Avenue. Any units nearby, please respond. Please be advised. Blackout reported on the 300 block of 235th and Ditch Road. You know, kind of normal crap like that. But then the calls keep coming in faster and faster, like the station is getting flooded with calls. And they keep getting weirder, you know? Like the kind of stuff that happens once or twice a year, not over and over again all in the same night. Freak's sake, I can still hear the lady at dispatch's voice calling these things in. Phone must have been ringing off the hook down there. She started to sound so stressed and, honestly, scared to death. Can't say I blame her. I remember her calling in stuff like reports of unidentified lights and sounds from the woods on the east side of town, requests for animal control to help with household pets that had gone feral, just going nuts, you know? Calls for wellness checks came in a dozen at a time, all of them asking for the cops to check on neighbors whose doors were just hanging wide open and no lights on inside. There was this one lady who called in and said she had seen something big moving in her backyard. Her husband had taken his gun outside to check it out to make her feel better. He just never came back. By this point, the cops in the front seats had started to look at each other kind of nervous-like. And that nasty, oppressive feeling is setting into my chest again. Then the sky lights up in these bright white flashes, strobing above us like chain lightning. That light was so bright, everybody in the car jerked their heads down and covered their eyes. I could see the flashes through my eyelids. The cop in the driver's seat slams on the brakes, and we skid to a stop in the middle of the street, just idling there in the rain as both policemen kind of peer out into the storm to see where those flashes came from. It hits all three of us in the car all at once. Even though this storm is right on top of us, no thunder came after the light. So these cops decide to get out and take a look at whatever the hell is going on. And all the while, I'm sitting in the back just begging them to stay in the car and keep driving. I mean, when a girl who just got found with a felony amount of heroin stuffed between her tits is asking you to keep hauling her to the police station, you know something isn't right out there. They don't bother listening, of course. Flipping on the reds and blues and stepping out into the pouring rain, I just sit there in the back looking out into the dark. I can't see a thing through the windows. Just sheets of rainwater crashing into the windows and rolling down in waves, getting lit up by the lights of the police car. The cops are just two dark shapes on either side, but as they step away to have a look around, they just disappear. And how long were the officers away from the vehicle? Could have been more than five minutes. Felt like it stretched on for an hour, though, sitting there in the dark alone, listening to the lady at dispatch calling more missing people reports. Then all of a sudden there's that bright flash again, and a big dark shape smashes into the left side of the car by where I'm sitting, bashing into the window hard enough to crack it in a million places. The shape bounced off, leaving a black smear that ran down before being washed away in the rain. I'm screaming at the top of my lungs as the driver's door swings open, and one of the cops dives in, soaked to the bone in rain. It's the kid who was in the passenger seat before, and he's pale as a damn ghost. He slams on the gas, and all of a sudden we're blasting down the street. We're both screaming over the engine roaring and tires squealing, and we're fishtailing all over as he tries to drive through the storm. 
And that's when I see that this kid is missing two and a half fingers on his right hand, just bleeding all over himself. His arm looks like somebody took a knife to it. Real deep cuts slashed all up and down his skin. So I start yelling like, Hey, hey, what's happened? What happened? Where's the other guy? And he's just screaming back, He's gone, he's gone. God, it was like a nightmare. A bad dream, you know, you can't wake up from. We drove out of town and the cop didn't stop. Driving through red lights and past stop signs, didn't slow down once. Sped past the turn he needed to take to reach the station and turned off his radio. Kid was terrified. I looked out the back window after we passed town limits, out in the pine forest to the north along State Road 14. Couldn't see a thing through the sheets of rain that crashed against the glass, and the woods were black as the sky was. Every once in a while that white light would strobe in the distance, over where town was a few miles away, kind of reflecting in the rain. Still no thunder came after it. For a second I thought I saw something moving in the lights, something big and dark in the sky. Couldn't tell through the rain, but it made me feel sick to my stomach just the same. All of a sudden, the cop driving the car skids to a stop again, killing the headlights and engine. We're just sitting there in the dark for a few minutes. The rain pounding around us. The driver is shivering in his seat and making these awful sounds when he breathes just quietly groaning and rattling and spinning phlegm. He didn't say another word to me. He opened his door and got out. I begged him not to go, and I really did. But he just looked at me, this awful, oily black stuff running out of his mouth and eyes like drool or snot. God, his eyes had a look like he was in agony. He locked the car doors and threw his keys on the driver's seat, slamming the door and locking me in and himself out. Damn. I screamed for him not to go, but he just turned and ran off into the woods beside the road, sprinting in this horrible way like an animal that's sick or hurt. He just disappeared into the dark, in the rain, and I was alone. Just alone. This is Dr. Aliza Poole, medical examiner assigned to case 446A. The date is September 15th. This is a recording of my examination of sample 86, recovered one mile northeast of the incident site by investigating agents. Initial observations of sample 86. The recovered object is the right arm of an adult male, Caucasian. Identifiable tattoo of a tiger head on the upper arm. Portions of the sample are stained with soil, the makeup of which has been previously confirmed by Dr. Izuma to match the soil of the forest around the incident site. Wounds in the upper arm suggest that the limb was removed via pulling and or tearing force as opposed to cutting tools or animal attack. Tearing of the bicep and cartilage from the rotator cuff still clinging to the humerus both support this theory. The limb was forcibly pulled off the body. The forearm bears deep cutting wounds, almost all of which cut deep enough to expose bone and deep muscle tissue. These mutilations are identical to those that could be inflicted by a razor or scalpel, though the location and spacing of the wounds would suggest they had been inflicted by a large animal. The hand of sample 86 is missing both the ring and pinky fingers, as well as the middle finger from the intermediate phalange up. 
These missing digits bear wounds similar to the cuts on the forearm, as if they had been amputated with a surgical scalpel or other extremely sharp blade. It's all so strange. I've never seen wounds like these. All wounds borne by the sample bear protruding growths of an unknown origin. Where the flesh opens, the growths press out, very similar in appearance to thrones or branching quills. The growths range in length from 3 to 14 inches, the longest of the quills protruding from the severed fingers and the shoulder joint, where they had presumably extended into the body. These spines, when examined under a microscope, bear multitude microscopic barbs and serrations, as well as a hollow tip like a hypodermic needle or blood vessel. The barbs are extremely sharp, as discovered by the agent who recovered the sample, who has since been placed in isolated quarantine for further observation. Another of these quill spines, broken off at the base, was recovered within the boundaries of the incident site and catalogued as Sample 11. Sample 11 underwent chemical analysis in Dr. Azuma's lab. His findings indicated that they are composed of an unknown compound, not previously discovered anywhere on the planet. The compound is primarily silicone-based, but contains elements of an unknown nature and structure. He is awaiting further testing. I am opening the arm now for an internal investigation. Okay. Incision complete. Pulling the tissue aside. Oh. Oh my god. The cardiovascular system of the limb has been entirely compromised by the growths. God, the, the veins and arteries are clogged full of the black substance, semi-solid within the limb unlike the quills that press outside the tissue. The semi-solid fluid is black with an oily sheen. The larger blood vessels are completely filled with it. The walls of the arteries are punctured through by tiny barbs, like you might see on a plant burr or sea urchin, pressing into the surrounding flesh, which is heavily inflamed. There... There are so many of these little spines stabbing through the arteries. They look as if they've grown stiff hair or bristles. Um... The black fluid appears to be reacting to something, possibly exposure to lighter oxygen. It, it, it's moving. The veins are undulating and writhing. It looks like a nest of snakes slithering in the meat of the arm. The limb itself has started to move, apparently puppeted by its own blood vessels. The little burr spines are twitching, clicking together and making tears in the surrounding muscle tissue. Wait, it's growing. Oh, holy crap, it's growing. More full-sized quills have begun growing from the incisions I have made. They form faster than I could have ever imagined. No, no, that's enough. Too much. The fluid and quills have grown enough to begin spilling over my examination table. No, no, I am ending this dissection. This sample must be contained. Wait, what, what the, what the hell is... Security! Security! Security, I need containment! I need con- This is Agent Carter Bennett, continuing interview number one with Mr. Samuel Taylor. 
Thanks again for letting me take a break and catch my breath, Carter. I appreciate it. Can we try and get this over with, though? I'm not feeling 100%. Absolutely. We can work on wrapping this up. Um, let's see here. My notes indicate we had left off at the discovery of a tunnel beneath the home of Eric Green. Yeah, yeah, that sounds right. So Gina, Thomas, and I start moving ahead into the tunnel, radioing up to Mike what we found and where we're going. He tells us that the rain is starting to pick up, but says we're good with the go-ahead. I led the team, working our way down this tunnel with that sulfurous wind blowing in and out past us. It was slow going, with the undulating ridges and smooth, wet porcelain rock and all that. Not to mention, even though we were performing search and rescue, none of us were in, a, were in much of a hurry to get too deep into this place. It felt bad down there. Real bad. And good lord, it was dark in there. And our lights just cast these eerie shadows on the waves of the walls as we went, reflecting off the moisture and the steam of our breath. So not too far into the tunnel, it starts to pitch down, descending deeper into the ground. It gets to this steep angle, steep enough that we could use the ridges on the floors like stairs. I mean, damn. I don't know what kind of place we were in. They might have actually been stairs. At that point, we're moving real slow, and nobody wants to slip and fall on this slick stone stuff and go tumbling down a tunnel that drops God knows how deep. Anyways, eventually the tunnel levels out again. Do you have any guesses as to how deep you had descended at that point? Uh, it's hard to say. There weren't landmarks to indicate we had made progress or anything, and all the walls were the same weird material, so we couldn't tell by any geological traits. I like to think I'm a pretty good judge of stuff like that, though. From how long we were walking at that angle, even though we were moving pretty slow, I would guess we were 700 feet down, probably more. And by this point, it's positively freezing down there. All three of us are shaking and shivering from cold and nerves, with the condensation on the walls still dripping. Not a sign of ice anywhere. I turn back to my team and I start to ask them if they think we should abort. We've gotten to the bottom of this slope and there's no sign of Eric Green. Even if he had survived the fall down the sinkhole, there's no way he wasn't hurt. No way he could have walked this far down the tunnel. Even if he had fallen or slid down the slope. We would have found him at the bottom where he leveled off. So I'm about to call it when Thomas speaks up. He had gone a few paces ahead while Gina and I discussed if we should continue. He turns back to us and says the tunnel ends. There's a chamber up ahead, so we followed him. We step out into this huge cavern, wide and tall enough that our lights barely hit the other side in front of us. Guessing from the wall, the tunnel connects to this thing is a massive smooth-sided dome. It's still ice-cold like the tunnel, but the walls and floors here are bone-dry. We walk out towards the middle of the room and we find it. There's a circular hole in the ground, probably 20 feet across, and perfectly at the center of the dome. And this hole? It's completely filled with this pitch-black liquid that just swallows up any light that it touches, like some horrid lake from another world. Or hell. It was impossible to tell how deep the hole went. The black ooze was impossible to see through. And the center of the pond? It kept slowly pulsing up and down like something big was gently bobbing beneath it. Something kept trapped below the surface tension. 
Before I can say anything, Thomas stoops down and sticks his hand into the liquid, sending ripples across the surface. He holds his hand up to his light, slicking the stuff between his fingers. It slips and runs like thick oil or phlegm. Not sticky, but kind of viscous, you know? He shakes most of it off, telling us how despite the temperature around us, the pool was disturbingly hot. Then it hits me. The bobbing motion at the center of the pool? It's happening in perfect synchronization with the air currents. The in and out pulls like something big is breathing. In that moment, I felt this awful sensation crawl its way up my throat. I knew we were looking at something we were never meant to see. And then Thomas dropped. At first, I thought something had pulled him, yanked him down. But no, he did it on his own. He dropped onto his hands and knees, plunged his head into the black pond. Gina and I rush over to him, tried to pull him up, but he wouldn't let us. He held himself down there with the strength of a madman, barely budging when we pulled. And that's when I noticed his throat, his head under the surface, the muscles of his neck contracting rhythmically. He was drinking. My God, he, he, he was drinking this stuff. Suddenly he reared back, taking a huge gasping breath and throwing Gina and I off of him. His face was coated in blackness, dripping from his nose and lips and flooding his open eyes. His stomach had bloated beneath his climbing harness, like a castaway who had drank too much water upon rescue. Then he plunged his head down and began drinking again as Gina and I started to scream. We heard it then, a muffled, wet, popping noise, when Thomas reared up again for another breath. Blood and black fluid was pouring from his throat and eyes in a torrent of vomit. As he crouched on all fours, the seat of his pants suddenly bloomed with crimson wetness, followed by black filth. Thomas had drunk enough to burst his stomach, and still he gulped from the pond. I was shocked. I pushed myself away from him. What else could I do, Carter? God, the noises his body made while his organs flooded and popped? Oh my God. Gina, always so brave, she rushed right back to his side trying to help him. The next time he brought his head up, he wasn't fully Thomas anymore. The black ooze that he puked from his mouth and nose was solid now, forming into these awful growths, like thin branches and thorns. They pushed out through his eyes, shredding them to wet mush and replacing them with clusters of shiny black spines. A huge spine, thick as my forearm, and serrated all over, pushed its way up his throat and out of his mouth, pushing his teeth from their sockets and ripping his gums to shreds. By the time it stopped growing, it was over a foot long, jutting from his ruined mouth like a jagged proboscis. The whole time his body was shaking and twitching and convulsing and blood was pouring out from where the spines had torn him up. And the worst part? Like Gina and me, he was screaming. I ran, Carter. I got up and I ran. I got to the tunnel and looked back once. The Thomas thing had tackled Gina, was straddled on top of her, kept slamming its head up and down, up and down, driving that proboscis right into her chest and guts and neck. There was so much blood splattering around them, bits of meat and entrails stuck to the barbed spikes that clustered from the thing's face. God... The way they both screamed and gurgled and cried. 
and then something started to pull itself up out of the pool of blackness behind them. Something big. Something ancient. Something hungry. I just ran. I ran and I slipped, and I fell and I ran again. I was barely myself, crying and screaming the whole way, gasping for air that wouldn't come. When I, when I finally got to the lift cord, I couldn't talk, couldn't yell. I just strapped myself to it and pulled, hoping Mike would notice. I heard feet dragging and stumbling behind me. I just closed my eyes. Then the rope went up and took me with it. Passed out about halfway up the sinkhole. Woke up in the hospital the next town over. Mike was there with me. Never heard what happened back at the hole. Anybody found my team. Even if they bothered to try. What happened when that thing came out into the world? I just don't know. This is the end of the tapes recovered at Calumet Heights Nature Reserve. It is still unknown who abandoned these tapes, where or when the events described occurred, or the full extent of the incident. If you or anyone you know has information you believe pertains to this incident, please come forward to assist in further investigation.